Let's open up our Bibles to the uh, book of um, 1 Samuel. I'd like to draw your attention here to chapter 23 this evening. Again, I think that as we're reading the story of King David, that we have to remind ourselves, because we can we kind of look at this stuff like it's almost like reading the story of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, we, like we're reading um, a story of fiction, but we're, we're reading history. And we're reading the history of a young man. At this point, he's in his very early 20s, and he is going through more difficulty than any of us in here probably will ever go through uh, over the course of our life. We're, we're talking about a, a young guy. Now, again, he hasn't asked for any of this. He was just out following his family's sheep. And he gets word from his dad that the holy man of Israel, Samuel, has showed up. And so he, he comes in and he meets the man of God. The man of God dumps a bunch of oil over his head. And he is anointed the new king. And then the, the, the winds of circumstance just blow in his life. And he ends up standing in front of Goliath. And God blesses him and gives him victory. And then he ends up being one of these officers under King Saul in his army. And, and everything is, he's doing everything that he is supposed to do. He is making every right decision. And here he is, a young man, keeping his nose clean, doing everything that he's supposed to be doing. And now... He ends up being an enemy of the state. He is Israel's most wanted. There is hardly anybody within the nation that he can trust. And everybody is stabbing him in the back. Everybody is narking on him. And this poor kid's life has been totally turned upside down. But God is using it. And God is taking this guy through very hard classes. If you're like me, you probably look back at, you know, your school years and you think, why did I not apply myself? Why did I not? You know, I, I came from this family of rednecks and every male role model that was in my life, you know, you, you, you worked. My, my family background did teach me to be a hard worker. You, you work, you hunted, and you fished and you drank, and you played cards. And we were not a forward-thinking people. And I did not think any further out than the end of my nose. I didn't, I didn't know any better. And I remember I just hated school. I blew it off. And in fact, I really, technically, I don't think that I even graduated from high school. <laughs> because about three weeks before graduation, one of the counselors that was one of the football coaches that really liked me uh, came up to me in the hallway and he had four pieces of paper. And he had the name of a teacher in a class on each of these pages. And he said to me, he said, Paul, you don't have enough credits to graduate. And I said, I don't care. And he said, no, no, you, you want to graduate. You want to do that. Now he said, I can't do this. You're going to have to do it yourself. But you've got to go to these four teachers. Now, all you need is two. If you can get two out of the four to sign up. And what I was asking the teacher to do was to lie, saying that I took their class and I had passed their class. Well, two of them told me 
where I could go and what I could do with that piece of paper, which wasn't very nice at all. And then two of them actually signed it. So I ended up graduating, but did I really, right? And I look back at those years and I think, what in the world was I thinking? Why didn't I take advantage of those opportunities? Why didn't I take those hard classes? Why didn't I study? Why didn't I pay attention? How much better might my life have been if I would have just applied myself a little bit more? Well, here is David. He's going through this hard season. God is taking him through these hard classes, if you will, and it is to prepare him for the calling that God has on his life. God has got great plans for this young man. And in order to get the young man ready for these great plans, he's gonna have to go through some very difficult, some very deep water in his life, some great challenges. Warren Wearsby, he makes this point. He said, in the second chapter of his book, Up From Slavery, Booker T. Washington wrote, I have learned that success is to be measured not so much by the position that one has reached in life as by the obstacles which he has overcome while trying to succeed. Measured by this standard, and it is a valid one, David was a very successful man. So over and over, God is gonna lead this young man into difficulty, but God is gonna prove himself to be faithful. God is with this young man, and God is gonna keep this young man. Now, we ended last time. David has moved his family into safety. His family is now outside of Israel. They are outside of Saul's reach. If King Saul would kill his own family members, imagine what he would do to David's family. So David has got them over in the region of Moab. They are on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. Common sense would say to David, you need to stay here too. And you need to stay here until Saul is dead. And then go back and become king. But the prophet shows up and the prophet says, no, God has called you to be the king of Israel. So get over into Israel. Many times when the Holy Spirit is burdening us to leave our place of comfort, leave our place of safety, it could very well be because there are important lessons that God is trying to teach us to prepare us for the works that he has ordained for us to step into in the future. And so David now is called back to Israel and the difficulty in this young man's life is gonna begin. Well, let's notice the setup of this in verse one, that then they told David saying, look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and they are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord saying, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. Now here's the difference between the illegitimate king King Saul, and the genuine king, the legitimate king, King David. The legitimate king has a heart for the people of God. The illegitimate king has no heart for the people of God at all. He only cares about himself. He only cares about people feeling sorry for him. But the true king, now, as, as this story develops, we're gonna see that Saul is a type of foreshadowing 
of, of Satan. And David is a type, he is a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Christ cares for people. Satan absolutely uh, despises people. And so word has reached him, look, this city is under assault. They need help. Now, now go and uh, take care of them, right? So he's praying, Lord, Lord, should, uh, should I go? And now, uh, David, this is not the most intelligent move, right? This is not a common sense move. He says to his men, he says, hey, uh, saddle up, guys. Uh, we're going to ride off to Keilah, and uh, they're under assault, and we got to save the city. His men, they obviously get pushback, and they're like, hey, boss, is it really wise for us to open up a second front, right? We, we're already running for our life. Do we want to kick another hornet's nest? Do we want to get something stirred up with another people group? We already got problems with these people. Is it the smartest thing that, that we could do? And so David goes and he, he prays again. And the Lord uh, says to him, uh, I haven't changed my mind, uh, David. I mean, how many times have uh, we said, uh, Lord, uh, I know this is what you said last week, uh, but is that still what you're uh, wanting me to do uh, this week? And the Lord said, hey, right, I, I haven't uh, changed my, my mind. And, uh, and he tells David, hey, I haven't, I haven't uh, changed my mind. And uh, so uh, David takes off. Now, he is in Abdullam, you remember, and so now Keilah is just to the southeast. He's going to we're going to see that he continues to get pushed uh, to the, the southeast. And so he's heading now uh, to save the city. And in verse 5, And David and his men, they went to Keilah, and they fought with the Philistines, and they struck them with a mighty blow. So it was a great victory. And took away their livestock. And so David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. So David responds to the SOS from a bunch of farmers. Now, we have to understand that Keilah is a, it's a far away place. It really, there really wasn't much to it. When we think of city, we shouldn't think of some sprawling metropolitan uh, area like we have today. Uh, this is all that is left of Keilah. It was just a very small village. Uh, it had a, a ringed wall. And so David, come, apparently the wall was substantial enough to keep the village from falling until David was able to get there and uh, defend off the, um, uh, the Philistines. And notice David is given credit here. Uh, David, David saved the inhabitants of, of Keilah. Uh, but what did the Lord say in verse 4? The Lord said, look, I will deliver the Philistines uh, into your hands. So it was God that was giving the victory. Uh, David was just simply uh, walking in obedience. Once again, if we will take care of our obedience, God will take care of the victories. If we will just make sure that we are maintaining a close relationship with Christ, uh, Christ is going to prove himself to be faithful on our behalf uh, simply uh, over and over again. So this had to be uh, some sunshine in an otherwise very dreary life of David. Uh, God has given victory. God has proven himself uh, to me once again. No doubt was, was just a real boost uh, to his faith. Now, word of this military action, of course, is going to be reported to King Saul. So we read in, in verse 7 that Saul, that he, he was told that David had gone to Keilah. And so uh, Saul said, now get this, God has delivered him into my hand, 
for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. This reveals the depth of spiritual deception and how deep it can run into a human soul. Here is a man who is responsible for killing innocent men, women, and children. You remember he destroyed the the priestly town of Nob, and he killed everybody. Here's a guy killing kids, killing women, killing the aged, and yet he believes that God is somehow on his side. Spiritual deception can take such a deep root in our heart that we can be the very enemy of God and yet we can convince ourselves that we know God and God is working on our behalf. What happened on October 7th? Hamas goes into Israel, does unspeakable things to women and children and they believe that they are doing God's bidding. They believe that God is using them. That is spiritual deception on display. We have on American campuses in this country, we have these college students marching in solidarity for such acts. That is spiritual deception. And if you have eyes to see, you will see that there is this overspreading darkness that is coming upon America. And this is the time for the church in America to arise and to realize that we are called to be the light and the salt. And so now Saul says uh, that David has made this a strategic mistake. If you're hunting prey and you're, you're trying to find prey and hundreds of square miles of wilderness, it's gonna be very difficult, isn't it? But if your prey is in a cage, well, that's, that's easy, right? That's a piece of cake. And so Saul believes David has made a strategic blunder. He is in a walled city. I'm gonna quickly come upon that city. I will have the city surrounded, and then I will have David, and I will kill him and get him out of my way. Now, somehow... David discovers that he has been discovered. And so David decides, I I need to get out of this place. And so he asks God, is Saul going to come after me? And the Lord says, well, yeah, of course he's going to come after you. And then notice what David asked the Lord in verse 12. This is interesting. And then David said, will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul, and the Lord said, uh, yeah, they will deliver you. And so David and his men, about 600, now that's interesting. So this is letting us know uh, that his forces are beginning to increase. The last, last time we were given a number of how many guys were with David, it was 400. So now it's up to six. So it's grown by 50%, has it? So they're, they're up to 600 now. And so they arose and they departed from Keilah and they went wherever they could go. I mean, where do you go with 600 guys, right? (laughs) That's going to take quite a a bed and breakfast, right? And uh, then it was told Saul uh, that David had escaped from Keilah, and so he halted uh, the the expedition. Now, the people, the very people that David saved, God said, yeah, 
they're, they're going to they're turn on you. You know, that's, sometimes life is that way, right? Sometimes uh, the people that you've done a solid for, uh, the people that you have been there, when they, when they were at their greatest need, uh, you were the one that was there for them. And you, you find these situations where that person that you really did that solid for is the very person that turns around and knifes you in the back. And it's one of the most uh, painful experiences in, in life. But, but we have to understand, David, what David did for them and then for them to reciprocate would put them in a very dangerous situation. In fact, uh, David Sumara, he says, from their standpoint, the men of Keilah, David had gotten them into much more trouble than, if he, had sa- than uh, he had saved them from. In other words, the Philistines, what would the Philistines do? They're going to come in and they're going to steal their stuff. They're not going to kill the farmers. They don't want to kill the farmers because they want the farmers to farm next year so then next year they could come back and rip them off again. So they're not going to, they're not going to get, maybe they're going to steal their food, maybe take a few, few women, but then they're, they're going to leave them there, right? Remember what Saul did to the city of Nob because there was a priest that had done David a favor. Saul came in and wiped out everybody. And so here is Keilah thinking to themselves, ay, ay, ay. I mean, our own king, our own government will treat us worse than our own enemies. And so, therefore, uh, they have uh, simply uh, no devotion uh, to David at all. It was a very easy call for them. If they help David, they are all going to be killed. Not just ripped off, but they're going to end up uh, being killed. Now, I want you to notice that through this whole narrative, David is not angry with God. He doesn't even put on display any kind of anger uh, for the men of, of Keilah here. Because David understands that this whole mess can be laid at the feet of one person, King Saul, the illegitimate king. And because he understands who is at fault and who is the troublemaker in this situation, he is then able to deal with others with great grace. Now, this is a lesson that we can learn as the followers of Christ. That this world, Jesus three times in the book of John tells us that Satan is the ruler of this world. In chapter 12, he said the ruler of this world will be cast out. Chapter 14, the ruler of this world is coming. I'm I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be killed here in a short period of time. In John 16, the ruler of this world uh, has uh, has been judged. And so, so Satan is the ruler. He is the illegitimate king. Christ is the king who is not ascended to the throne as of yet. In the book of Revelation, we are told the day is coming where there will come a great cry that behold, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That has not happened yet. As Paul tells us, all we see right now is that Jesus has been made a little lower than the angels and he has suffered for our sin. We do not see him ascending to the throne of the earth as of yet. And so we have to understand that when there are relationship problems, when there are problems in your marriage, 
when there are problems in your church, there are interpersonal relationship problems between you and other brothers and sisters in Christ, would to God that we would learn the lesson of Ephesians chapter six, verse 12, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. There is one that we can lay all of the blame at his feet. This person that you think is your enemy, they are not your enemy. They are a person that is loved by God. And God desires that we would walk in harmony and unity with them. And there is one entity that is trying to keep that from happening. And we have to understand that instead of pulling out the broadsword and whacking off the heads of our enemy, we have to understand that there is a spiritual warfare going on in my marriage. There's a spiritual warfare going on in my church. And we need to pray against this. Again, um, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said, I am certain that one of the main causes of the ill state of the church today is the fact that the devil is being forgotten. All is attributed to us. We have all become psychological in our attitude and thinking. We're ignorant of this great objective fact. The being, the existence of the devil, the adversary, the accuser, and his fiery darts. That so much of the division that is in the church and in our homes is of a spiritual nature. And we need to pray and fast that God would give us spiritual victories, understand who your real enemy is and who your real friend is. And so David is not bent out of shape. David is not killing the men of Keilah. He would have a right to do it. Here he, here he endangered his own life, and this is the kind of thanks that he gets, but he understands who the real enemy is. Would to God that we as the followers of Christ would understand who the real enemy is truly is. It's not the person sitting next to you at church. They are not the real enemy. Well, then you'll notice in, in verse 14, so he, he, he bails out of that. He gets out of that. In verse 14, so David stayed in the strongholds in the wilderness, and he remained in the mountains, the wilderness of Ziph, and Saul sought him every day. I mean, that is a principle. Our enemy is just relentless, isn't it? He just never stops. He just won't stop. He just doesn't quit. You would think at some point, he is, how many thousands of years of defeat has this guy? I mean, what is he, like a gazillion and to zero, you know, is his record against God? You would think at some point he would say, you know what, I'm going to throw up the white flag, you know, I'm going to surrender, and maybe God will be a little merciful. But he just doesn't quit. Every day, Saul is hunting this guy. But God did not deliver him uh, into his hands. And so here is David now. He's going farther southeast. Eventually, he's going to end up right on the shore of, of the Dead Sea. Now, he's going deeper into uh, the Judean wilderness. This is a very a harsh environment. Uh, you can see this is a very difficult environment to hunt somebody down in, but again, you got 600 guys. I mean, 600 guys are gonna require a lot of water. 
600 guys are going to require a lot of food, as we're going to see when we get into chapter 26. David is always concerned about his supply chain and how can I keep these guys watered and, and fed. But it, it, it gave you protection, and David is going deeper into it, uh, hoping to buy him some time from the forces of, um, of King Saul. So in this harsh environment, notice who shows up and who finds him in verse 16. And then Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. And he said unto him, do not fear. For the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you, and you shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. So this was his plan. I'm going hey, to be right next to you, man. I'm going to be a part of your kingdom. You're going to be the guy. I'm going to be there, you know, trying to help you any, any way that I can. Now, Jonathan is a great friend. Jonathan is a real encourager, uh, but Jonathan is not a prophet. Uh, because this is not going to happen, unfortunately, for uh, Jonathan. So I'm going to be right there uh, at your side. And even my father, uh, he knows that. And again, what a great source of encouragement this had to be. Uh, for You know, sometimes it's just, the, it's just the length of the trial. It's not necessarily the trial itself, but you just don't see light at the end of the tunnel. You just don't see how this is going to have a happy ending. You don't know how in the world this is going to come out, turn out in your favor. And it just goes on and on and on. And there's just no relief. And you're just getting dogged by this problem just every single day. You can just get wore out. You're just brought to the point where you're just, you're just spent. You're just, you're done. You're you're tired of the struggle, and uh, Lord, take me home, because I can't take uh, much more of this. And so often in those times where we're ready to give up, here comes Jonathan. Jonathan was an Old Testament version of Barnabas. Barnabas in the book of Acts, he was the son of consolation. He was a guy that would come alongside of you and encourage you. You go have coffee with Barney. You're ready to take on the world by the time you got done with that, right? And so here's Jonathan, and he comes in, and I know you're going to be king. My dad's not going to get to you. It's going to be great, David. It's, it's going to turn out uh, just wonderful. You know, I think this is a good lesson for us that, that you know, you, you and I, um, maybe we'll never be a King David. Maybe that's not in the cards. Maybe we're never, we're never going to rise to, you know, some height of, uh, of greatness. But all of us, all of us can be a Jonathan. All of us can be a Barnabas. All of us can be a great encouragement uh, to that person that is just wore out by the challenges of life. That's what happens in our marriages, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus said, uh, why did Moses give uh, a writing of divorcement? Because of the hardness of heart. You know what it is if you've been married for a long period of time. You know that you go through those seasons where you're just ticked off and you're just angry and you're just celebrating your rightness and the wrongness of your spouse and that hardness begins to set in. But what a glorious thing to have a friend, to have a kind voice, to come up and say, you know, come on, let's, let's begin to approach this the way the Lord wants us to approach this. Let's, let's begin to make some biblical choices for ourselves and not leaning upon the arm of the flesh. We don't understand how valuable our encouragement can be 
Find somebody that needs encouragement. Go alongside of them. Speak to them in kind words, encouraging them to draw closer to the Lord. And this is what, this is what Jonathan did. Now, it, 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 the, chapter, the chapter ends now with, with Saul. He's beginning to, to close in, but as he's closing in on David, he receives word that the Philistines um, are advancing. And so he has to break off. He's just about ready to pounce on David. And a courier comes and says, hey, you know, we, got, we got Philistine problem. Forget David problem right now. We got Philistine problem. And the Lord is the master of every situation. And if you've been following the Lord for a long period of time, you too have those stories. You've got those testimonies where there were seasons where you thought you were gonna bite the big one. You thought, goodbye, cruel world. Uh, this is the end of it all. And in the 11th hour, the Lord swoops in and you can't even explain the deliverance. You don't even, you don't even know what exactly happened. I remember about 20, 25 years ago, Sherry and I, we were in, oh, we were in such a tough financial place. I mean, we were, we were in big trouble uh, financially. And the Lord, I mean, we looked at what we owed and we looked at what was coming in and there wasn't nearly enough coming in as what, what was owed. But somehow everything that was owed, it just got paid off and it's like, Oh, how, how, how did that work? Well, it's, it's the Lord. And the Lord will just show himself faithful on our behalf. We just keep seeking him, keep doing the right thing, keep making biblical decisions for ourselves, and God will bless, bless our life. And so, so Saul has to call off the attack. And notice in verse 29, then, as we close, then David, he went up from there. And he dwelt in the stronghold of En Gedi. So he continues to move in this south uh, easterly, and now he's over in En Gedi. We'll talk more about En Gedi next time we're together because it sets up really one of the more humorous stories in the Old Testament uh, as we get into chapter 24. But what we see in David is just the simple formula of getting out of depression getting out of discouragement, we notice that there are two things that happen uh, in, in this young man's life. Notice the first thing, we find it several times, we find it in verse two, that David inquired of the Lord. Verse four, David inquired of the Lord once again. Verse 11, I pray, tell your servant, it is well documented that David was a man of prayer. And so the first thing that this guy under pressure does is that he gives himself to prayer. The second thing that we find, we find earlier in the story, Abby Arthur, the priest comes to him, and now Jonathan comes to him. He has godly companions. We cannot overemphasize the importance of surrounding ourselves with godly personalities when we are under the gun. You hang around pigs, you're gonna smell like pigs, all right? You hang around godly people, you're gonna end up being godly. It's just important that we pay attention to the quality of companions that we are allowing to speak into our lives. Are you allowing those people who are encouraging you down the path of defeat? 
Or are you allowing people come into your life that are encouraging you to take the higher path, to take the higher road, the road of obedience, the road of biblical choices in your life? And as David is giving himself to prayer and he's got these godly guys coming in close and speaking words of encouragement to him, the whole thing turns around and we're gonna see this guy's life just radically shift now over the next several chapters. I believe in large part because of these two things, these, these two activities that are going on in his life, prayer and godly fellowship. And so I think that we need, as we go to prayer, that the Lord would give us a heart for prayer and that the Lord would give us a heart to hang out uh, with the godly. And Father, I would ask that as we leave here tonight that, Lord, the lesson of David would not be lost on us, that you would continue to burden our hearts on the importance of prayer. You are a prayer-answering God. And this room is filled with so many testimonies that would verify that fact and that you have called us to be encouragers to one another. You've called us to draw near to one another, particularly as that day of the coming of Christ draws even nearer. So Lord, may we be a people of prayer, people of fellowship, remembering that you are a God that never fails You are never late. You are always on time. You do all things well. And Father, you call us to just walk this walk of faith. So Lord, increase our faith and help us to be those representatives, to be the children of light, to be the light and the salt of the earth. And Lord, We do pray for our nation, God. Have mercy on us. Would you send revival? Awaken your people that we would um, allow the light of the gospel to shine in and through us. Oh, God, save America, we pray. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.